0: Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Last week, we started a brand new teaching series called, What Kind of Church?, Uh, When I was young in ministry and just starting out, I was in Jackson, Mississippi, and people would show up, and they would note the name of our church was Southwest Christian Church, and they would ask, what kind of church is this? And I would usually say, we're just a Christian church, and no one ever said, well, that explains everything. You cleared that right up for me. Thank you. Instead, what almost always came next was this question. But what kind of Christian, and you got to kind of emphasize that word, but what kind of Christian? And therein lies the question that really is at the heart of this series. How did we get to the place where the term Christian needs to be defined further than simply Christian? Christian. When did the term Christian become so ambiguous, unclear, and uncertain, and where do you go when just a Christian doesn't seem like a satisfactory explanation? And furthermore, how do you define what a Christian is? Well, what I didn't know to say at 22, because I lacked the knowledge and experience and wisdom, I'm able to say a little better now, 38 years later. So basically, this series is about what I wish a younger me could have said. And as we saw last week, we don't get a lot of help on the question of defining what a Christian is by looking at the Bible, because the actual term Christian is only used three times in all of the Bible, and that's a little surprising for a lot of people. And it was introduced first by people outside the church who were giving something of a disparaging label to those inside the church. As Pastor Andy Stanley has pointed out in the book of Acts, Christian is found primarily on the lips of critics. It was a slur. It was an insult. And Andy says this, in the first century, no one asked Christians if they were Christian. They were accused of it. We've also seen that in our day, that term Christian is slapped on a lot of views and voices and sometimes even vices that are really unchristian. At least in the way they come across to many of the people that Christians say they're trying to reach. So while the word Christian is, was, and probably always will be hard to define, there is another word that was used to describe the first followers of Jesus by the first followers of Jesus themselves. It's a word that's used 269 times in the Bible, which is a lot more than three, by the way. And that word is disciple. Everybody say that word with me. Disciple. And while it's always been hard to pin down exactly what a Christian is or isn't, there's no ambiguity about what being a disciple means. And there really never has been in Greek or English or any other language. Disciple means the same thing. It's a learner. It's a pupil. It's an apprentice. It's an inherent inherit, or it's a follower. A disciple is someone who does this. I'm trying to make a decision. How would you handle this? Because that's how I'm going to handle it. I'm trying to decide how to respond to a situation. How would you respond to that situation? Because that's how I'm going to respond. What would you do if you were me? Then that's what I'm going to do. How do you manage relationships, live your life, handle your money, deal with people that you don't like or that don't like you? Because that's what I'll do. You see, a disciple is someone who says, give me some direction, show me how to live my life. And before you even give me the answer, I want you to know my answer is going to be yes. And that's a lot different than saying, I'm a Christian which can mean a whole bunch of different things to a whole bunch of different people. But it's hard to misdefine, it's hard to misinterpret what a disciple is. So last week, we said this, the first answer to the question, what kind of church, we said this, we are a Jesus-following, disciple-making church. In fact, our mission statement as a church is this, to make disciples of Jesus who love God, love people and serve the world. Everybody read that out loud with me, Lake County, online, let's all read it together to make disciples of Jesus who love God, love people, and serve the world. We really believe that following Jesus will make your life better and make you better at life. I really believe that. If you follow Jesus, your life will be better and you'll be better at life. And who doesn't want that? So today with that kind of baseline being established, let's talk about what exactly it was that Jesus was bringing to the world that he intended his followers to carry on after his death, burial, and resurrection. So let's start by making this statement. Jesus' arrival signaled the end of something and the beginning of something entirely new. Everybody say these last two words with me. Say them together. Entirely new. How new is it? Entirely new. Jesus didn't come to offer a new version of an old thing or to update an existing thing. Jesus didn't come to tweak the Ten Commandments or to make something better. Jesus was sent by his Father in heaven to introduce something entirely new into the world. And people gathered by the thousands to listen to him, to see him, and to experience him. But it wasn't just his new message that drew people to Jesus. It was Jesus himself, People who were nothing like Jesus, liked Jesus. People who were nothing like Jesus, liked Jesus. And Jesus liked people who were nothing like like him. If Jesus practiced the principle of guilt by association, he would have stayed in heaven. He would have certainly refused to associate with me. Instead, Jesus invited unbelieving, misbehaving, Troublemaking, messy men and women to follow him and to embrace something new. And they did. And by the way, don't you think if we're following Jesus that we should be known as people who like people who are nothing like us? Doesn't that make sense? That if we're following Jesus, we should be known as people who like people who are nothing like us. I think that makes sense, but sadly, we live in a world where if you say, One thing someone disagrees with or doesn't like, then they discount everything you've ever said and everything you've ever accomplished. The popular term for that behavior is cancel culture, and the only thing it's canceling is the collective IQ of our entire culture because we're no longer willing to listen to or learn from individuals or groups who don't see, interpret, and experience the world the way we do. And unless you meet the standard of purity or perfection as the cancel culture crowd defines it, then you're dead to them. All I'm saying is, aren't you glad Jesus didn't treat us that way? In fact, the only thing Jesus ever canceled about people was their sins and imperfection. Paul wrote this to the church in Colossae. He, Jesus, canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to the new that Jesus came to unleash on our confused, broken, guilty, deeply divided world, which is not unlike the world Jesus entered. In the gospel records of the life of Jesus, we meet two distinctly different groups that had two distinctly different agendas, and these two groups were the dominant forces in ancient Middle Eastern first century life. One is called the temple, and the other is called the empire. The temple and the empire. One is religious in nature. The other was political. These two powerful groups disagreed on just about everything. But when Jesus came along, they found a common threat and a common enemy. And in the end, they conspired together in the most unholy of ways to execute Jesus, thinking that would be the end of his kingdom message, his ragtag movement, and his dangerous influence. You see, new brands rarely set well with those whose fortunes are tied to the old ones. Or you could say it like this, those who profit most from the status quo are the least inclined to let it go. And that principle is just true in a lot of places, isn't it? Those who profit most from the status quo are the least inclined to let it go. And yet, at this very moment, 2,000 years later, Christians from all over the world are visiting the ruins of the Roman Forum, while 1,500 miles away, tourists are snapping pictures on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Think about that. Rome is adorned with crosses, which was once a symbol of the power of the state to take a life, that Jesus transformed into a symbol of the power of God to save a life. And the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus was sent to his death outside the gates of the city, is flooded with Christian tourists all over the city. How did that happen? Sandwiched between the power of the Jewish temple and the might of the Roman Empire. The Jesus movement should have never made it out of the first century, but it did. How? How did a movement birthed in the armpit of an empire whose leader had been rejected by his own people and crucified as a wannabe king by Rome survive in the face of overwhelming resistance and unrelenting persecution? And how is it that that same upstart movement would eventually be embraced by the very empire that sought to extinguish it? Or is one British writer named Karen Armstrong, and this lady's not a Christian, but look at what she wrote. Yet against all odds, by the third century, Christianity had become a force to be reckoned with. We still do not really understand how this came about. And historically speaking, she's correct. It's virtually impossible to explain. Anthropologists, historians, and even skeptics with agendas to undermine our faith have reached the same conclusion. Something happened in first century Palestine that resulted in Christianity spreading like an airborne disease. The new Jesus unleashed made the faith of the first century believers formidable. Their apologetic, irrefutable. Their courage unquestionable and their results remarkable. How did that happen? I submit to you today that because Jesus made a promise. To understand this promise, we need to walk through a passage. We're gonna spend the rest of our time doing that. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, first gospel in the New Testament. Chapter 16, so if you wanna follow along, you can do that or you can follow along on the screen here. One day, Jesus and his 12 disciples were well, they were well north of Jerusalem, outside of a town called Caesarea Philippi. Take a look at this map. So Jerusalem's way down here. This is the Galilee area where Jesus spent most of his ministry, but Caesarea Philippi, it's on the northeastern fringe of the nation of Israel. The city was named to honor Caesar Augustus, which was the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus' birth, hence the name Caesarea, and for Philip II, or Philip the Tetrarch, as he's called in Luke's gospel, who was a powerful but regional ruler. Caesarea Philippi stood only 25 miles away from the religious communities of Galilee, but the city's religious practices were vastly different from those of the nearby Jewish towns. In Old Testament times, the northeastern edge of Israel became a center for the worship of a Canaanite deity named Baal. For example, in this nearby Israelite city of Dan, an Israelite king named Jeroboam built a place of worship for another god, which eventually led the Israelites to worship many other false gods. And years later, when Romans conquered that territory, Philip rebuilt the city and named it after himself, but Caesarea Philippi continued to focus on the worship of Greek gods. Now, take a look at this picture. This is a fascinating picture. Historians and archaeologists say that the city of Caesarea Philippi was built on a hill. This is a large side of the hill here, that Caesarea Philippi was built on top of this cave. This cave that you see right here was at the center of the worship of a Greek god named Pan, who was the father of Peter Pan. And I made that last part up. I'm just making sure you're still with me. Okay? The pagans believed that this cave at Caesarea Philippi created a gateway. Kind of looks that way, doesn't it? Into the underworld where fertility gods lived during the winter and returned each spring coming out through a stream of water that used to flow out of that cave. So there used to be some water coming out of that cave. And they believed that were the fertility gods coming back. And to worship these false gods, they committed unspeakable acts that included prostitution, child sacrifice, and bestiality. And so when Jesus brought his disciples to this area, you can imagine how they must have been. Caesarea Philippi is like a red light district in their world. Devout Jews would have avoided any contact with the heinous acts committed there. I mean, it was a city of people literally and eagerly knocking on the doors of hell. In fact, the nickname of Caesarea Philippi was the Gates of Hades. Keep that in mind as we continue on. Or the gates of hell. Jesus is presenting a clear challenge to his disciples in this defining moment in his ministry. And what is that challenge? He doesn't want them to hide from messy places filled with messy people because Jesus doesn't run from messy people. He runs to messy people. And so in that hostile, bizarre setting, Jesus asked his team a turning point question. Here's what he said. He asked his disciples, who do people say, the son of man is. He's talking about himself. Who do people say the son of man is? What's the word on the street about me? What's my rep? Well, it turns out some believed he was John the Baptist 2.0. Others suggested he was the reincarnation of the prophet Elijah or Jeremiah or some other dead Jewish prophet. Implication, not only were Jesus' first followers not expecting something new, they associated him with someone dead or really old. And then Jesus popped this brilliant follow-up question. He said, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter spoke up, of course. Peter can't help but speak up. Peter never had an unexpressed thought. You know anybody like that? Or set by the kid in school who always went, ooh, 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 ooh. No matter what the question was. Peter said, I tell you who I think you are. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus responded, you're spot on, Peter. In today's vernacular, Jesus would have said 100%. Actually, Jesus said it like this. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus said, you didn't come up with that answer on your own, Peter. My Father in heaven helped you out. He gave you that one. And then Jesus makes this huge announcement. And he says, "'And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church.'" Now, a little pause. If you grow up in a Roman Catholic church background, and many of you have, you believe Jesus was talking about Peter when Jesus was talking about what he would build his church on because the name Peter means rock. And if you didn't grow up in a Roman Catholic church background then you believe Jesus was not talking about Peter, but about the statement Peter made about Jesus. And the correct answer is, let's keep reading. (laughs) And the gates of Hades, remember that phrase? And the gates of Hades will not overcome it, And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. You see, I think when we really understand what Jesus is saying here, it becomes clear what Jesus meant. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. That's the term that Jesus used. What is ecclesia? An ecclesia is a congregation. It's an assembly It means called out ones. In other words, Jesus said, I'm going to build an indestructible gathering of people in my name and nothing, not even my death, not even your death is even going to stop it. And here we are today. Listen, this is, that's worth a clap because let me tell you, this is one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible because it predicted us. More to the point, Jesus predicted something new. He spoke in the future tense. Notice what he said. I will build. And as it hadn't happened yet, but it's uh, on the horizon. What was the new? Nobody knew was coming, but Jesus his church. Church. This is the first time the word church appears in our English New Testament. And it's really unfortunate translation of what Ecclesia really means. Because we hear church, we think building. That's not what Jesus meant. So please hear what I'm about to say to you right now. Jesus wasn't talking about a place people would come to. Jesus was promising a people that would go out. He predicted an entirely new kind of assembly, signaling an entirely new movement. Jesus wasn't talking about a location when he said he would build his church. He was talking about a congregation. He wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about a body, a body of people who would be committed to this one big idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord of all, and the Son of the living God. That's what he was saying. And what Jesus promised that day, standing in the scorching Galilean sun, eventually materialized. Weeks after his resurrection, his followers took to the streets of Jerusalem, filled with the Spirit of God. And the Jesus movement started moving. After the resurrection of Jesus, his spirit energized followers, began to understand. Jesus did not come to simply add an additional chapter to the story of Israel. Jesus had not come to introduce a new version of Judaism. His movement was not regional. The Jesus movement was not just for one nation, it was for all nations. His followers claimed that he was the final sacrifice for sin, eliminating the need for the Jewish temple, but not just the Jewish temple. 20 years or so after the resurrection, the apostle Paul would stare down the idol-worshiping civic leaders in the city of Athens, Greece, and declare that their pagan temples were unnecessary as well. And in that same speech, Acts chapter 17, Paul labeled their idol worship as ignorant, like a parent waiting for a child to outgrow her childish ways. God had overlooked idol worship for a season, but now it was time for the world to grow up and acknowledge the living on the move God who is for all nations. I love how Tim Keller put this. He said Jesus was the temple to end all temples. He's the priest to end all priests. And He's the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And today there are approximately 2.38 billion people around the world populating over 45,000 different denominations who claim to be Christians. And the only thing, and I mean the only thing, the epicenter, the common ground that all those thousands of denominations have is exactly what Jesus predicted that dusty, hot afternoon outside of Caesarea Philippi, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's going to build a gathering around this one remarkable statement, and nothing's going to be able to stop it. And you and I are gathered here today because we're part of the fulfillment of that extraordinary promise that afternoon. Let me ask you, do you understand? I'm Seriously. Do you understand how remarkable that is? Do you know how many people tried to snuff out this message that you're hearing today over the centuries? Do you realize how fragile those early tiny congregations were trying to survive in the midst of paganism and persecution? How did we get here? That's important to stop and think about for a minute. And when you got ready to come to this assembly today, either a to Popker or Lake County, This corporate gathering of Jesus followers. I don't know what you were thinking about, but if I could help you do one thing in your pre-worship gathering routine, I would help you do this. Consider that you and I are coming together in fulfillment of a promise that Jesus made over 2,000 years ago. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, let me just say this to you. This may be obvious, but I need to say it anyhow. Gates are not an offensive weapon. You understand that gates are not an offensive weapon, meaning no general ever said to troops before leading them into battle. Everybody listen up. It's about to get real. We're about to go up against a formidable enemy. So strap your gates on. (laughs) Gates aren't for playing offense. Gates are a defensive weapon. You say, what does that mean? It means Jesus is not giving us a picture of a church that desperately seeking to hold on in the onslaught of the world. No, this is a vision of a church sweeping through the world and the world not being able to stop it. This is not a picture of the church as a fortress that's hiding away, trying not to be contaminated by the world. No, this is a picture of the church on the move being sent out to communicate the message of the Messiah to messy people. And that's what we do because Jesus made a promise. The reason this is so important is because a promise is only as good as the person who makes it. Would you agree with that? A promise is only as good as the person who makes it. Nod your head if you agree with that. All right. Let me explain it like this. Who here, Lake County Online, has a payment on anything? I'm talking about a student loan, a car, house payment, and by the way, it's okay to raise your hand. I'm not Dave Ramsey. I'm John Hampton. I'm not going to yell at you and take your credit card away. (laughs) What if somebody called you up today and said, I want to pay off your student loan. I want to pay off your car. I want to pay off your house. I want to pay off whatever debt you have. Would you be interested in taking that call? I suspect you probably would, but you maybe wouldn't get that excited unless you knew the person had the potential to pay it off, right? I mean, if they don't, it's no different than the email from a Nigerian prince who has 25 million and he wants to put in your account or that phone call that says they want to give you a greatly discounted vacation package and the only thing you have to do is listen to a brief opportunity presentation. And some of you have been there, done that, bought the timeshare. Or think about it like this. Everybody right now, come on now, everybody right now, Think of your most broke, crazy, weird relative. Got that person in mind? And by the way, if they're here with you today, don't look at them. Just blink twice and I'll know. Some of you say, I can't think of anybody, pastor. hate to break this to you. Could be you. Needed to be said. Here's who I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of that relative who is kind of like Cousin Eddie to Clark Griswold. You know, remember these two guys? Huh? Any old vacation movies? Cousin Eddie and Clark Griswold. What if your family's version of broke, crazy, weird Cousin Eddie called you up and said, I'm going to pay your debts off, Clark. You probably wouldn't go, woo baby, we're set for life. No, you'd probably say, honey, sounds like Cousin Eddie's been hitting a bottle again. I think you fell off the wagon. But what if this guy calls you up? You know who that is? Yeah, Elon Musk. Elon Musk's net worth is somewhere around $300 billion, depending on how the stock market does that day. If Elon Musk were a country he would be in the top 40 wealthiest nations in the world. Elon Musk has enough money to buy all 32 NFL franchises that are currently valued at a combined $112 billion and still have $190 billion left over. That's how rich he is. Now, let's say Elon called you up, and you verified it was really him, and he offered to pay off everything instead of your broke, crazy, weird cousin Eddie. You'd probably get a little more excited, wouldn't you? Why? Because there's some mega power behind any financial promise Elon makes. Elon has the coin to make it happen. Listen to me. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it. Jesus made the promise to build his church. Now, Jesus made some incredible promises. Nobody in history made promises like Jesus. He said things like, I promise to be with you always, no matter where you are. I promise to give you peace No matter what happens in your life, I promise to love you no matter what you do. Someone has documented that Jesus made over 200 promises only he could fulfill. Five times from this point forward, that text we read in Matthew 16, when Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi, five times in the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus makes another kind of promise. Look at this. Jesus said, from that that time on, Matthew writes... Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. The very first time Jesus makes a promise about his death, burial, and resurrection is right after this defining conversation in front of the gates of hell at Caesarea Philippi. Now the disciples didn't believe him. And by the way, you wouldn't have either. I mean, Matthew hadn't read the gospel of Matthew yet. They had never seen someone experience a Roman crucifixion before and then thought, you know what? I think that guy's going to make it. I'd say in about three days, that guy's going to be good as new. None of them had ever seen somebody come back from the dead. When someone dies, you don't say a year later, you know, I haven't seen so-and-so around a while. When somebody dies, it's game over. But Jesus promised with me, it's not going to be game over. In fact, Jesus says, here's what you need to know about me. With me, it's never over. You see, when when Jesus comes into your life with Jesus, when somebody dies, it's not game over. It's game on. Listen, I don't follow Jesus because of what he said, even though he said some amazing stuff. I follow Jesus because of what he did. I love and follow Jesus because he made a promise and then he delivered on it. I don't follow Jesus just because the Bible tells me so. I follow Jesus because the tomb is empty. I love that old story about a drunk man who staggered out of a local pub on a dark and rainy night and started walking to his house. He thought he would take a shortcut through the local cemetery, but he wasn't paying attention to where he was walking. And he fell into a freshly dug grave for a funeral the next day. And he tried and tried to climb out of that grave, but the dirt was too slippery and he couldn't get a good handhold and he kept falling back down. After several failed attempts, he gave up and he resigned himself to spending the night in that grave until the morning when the funeral procession would arrive. While he was sleeping, another man from the same pub took the same shortcut, fell into the same open grave. And he too jumped and scrambled and did everything he could to get, it. he started calling for help. Help, I fall into a grave and I can't get out or something like that. The first drunk woke up, put his hand on the second man's shoulder and said, it's no use, buddy, you can't get out of here. But he did. Jesus Christ is able to fulfill every single promise he made, not because he was an amazing moral example or a great teacher that said some wise and mysterious statements, but because he got out of his grave. He is risen. He's risen just as he said. Amen. Listen, it's the event of the resurrection that gives power to his promise. The resurrection is the reason I believe his promises. Every promise Jesus made is true, not because he was a great teacher, but because he was a dead man who came to life. And I don't know about you, but I'm betting my life and my eternity on the man that got out of his grave. And so when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades can't overcome it or withstand it or hold it off. That's what kind of church we are. Friends, how great is our God? That He beat death. How great is our God that he would save us? How great is our God that he would even want to save us? How great is our God that he would change us? How great is our God that he would love us? How great is our God that he would take a handful of believers in a living room off Bear Lake Road in Apopka, Florida, 53 years ago, and turn it into one church in multiple locations that touched the world? How great is that? Listen, I don't love Journey Christian Church because I think we're a great church. I love Journey Christian Church because I believe we serve a great God who sent his only son and gave up his life for the church, and he's called us to do great things in his name. Now, Here's what I know. Some of you don't feel great today. Some of you don't feel great today. Some of you feel very messy. How interesting that you are here today. You may call that a coincidence. I call it providence. Here's what I know. Lake County, listen, online. It doesn't matter why you think you're here. It really does. It doesn't matter why you think you're here. God brought you here. Because you matter to him and he loves you He's made you some amazing promises. And listen, even the fact that you're here today is fulfillment of one of those promises. So what kind of church are we? We're a Jesus-following, disciple-making church that Jesus promised and that his resurrection makes a reality. That's what kind of church we are. Everybody stand with me right now. Lake County, let's stand together. Thank you, Jesus, that you do exactly what you say. Whatever you've promised, you'll do. And you said to 12 guys, I will build my church. And they had to look around and think, what what are you talking about? It's just us, Jesus. And we're standing in front of the gates of hell, literally. But you came to bring something entirely new and in your blood you have the power to purchase us and everyone who comes to you and so we thank you for that we thank you for this time we thank you for this assembly we thank you that at one time 53 years ago there was 18 people in a room and now there's hundreds That are touching thousands. Jesus, only you can do that. And we thank you for keeping your promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.